Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Here we go on Chasing Justice. I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe Pangaro, and as you know, I am thrilled to be here with everybody. It's really, it's really quite an honor to get to spend time with you, to be able to voice my opinions, think things out on the air, and connect with everybody there. So I'm really glad you're there. You know, recently, uh, I had a talk with the, the people at the station, at the America Out Loud station, and they said this show is growing and growing and growing. We have more and more people listening in. I think that's fantastic, and I want to welcome everybody to Chasing Justice. Uh, everybody's welcome here to come on in where we talk about the news of the day, we talk about topical things, we try and learn things once in a while. Uh, you know, I offer some different insights. We have the guys in the neighborhood, so it's a lot of fun. So today, I wanted to take a little bit and start looking around and saying, I've seen some things going on. Uh, when it comes to justice, let's take a look here. Recently, the state of Texas, which still has the death penalty, uh, and they, they use it. They use the death penalty quite a lot, as a matter of fact. There was a, a young man put to death recently, and 16 years ago, he had killed a police officer. Officer Nix, I believe, was his name. And I don't really care to say the killer's name, uh, but the officer, a police officer, was, uh, he was engaged at the time, had a whole life ahead of him. Uh, he was stopping a car that he believed was uh, wanted for some other crime. And as he walked up to the window and he tapped on the window, uh, the killer inside fired and shot uh, the officer. And he died as a result of his wounds. Well, this killer was captured, arrested, tried, convicted, and sat on death row for 15 or 16 years. And they put him to death. And normally, when you hear these things, you know, they talk about what happens in the death chamber. And I always wondered if the media is doing that because they just want to, you know, freak everyone out and, and make you uncomfortable with what goes on. It's all uncomfortable. If you ever saw how they uh, processed meat, you know, from uh, uh, cows and, uh, and sheep and all, you, you'd be horrified because it's a terrible thing, but it's part of life. Now, the death penalty is something that, you know, we rage back and forth on in this country. And is it right to take someone's life or not? What if you make a mistake? That's probably the most horrible thing of all if you make somebody's mistake. In a modern age, though, we have DNA, and DNA has cleared many people out of prison, uh, and it's also convicted many people, as it rightly should. It's a, it's a pretty good uh, bit of evidence. So this young man that gets put to death, I have to say, when he had his moment laying on the gurney, he apologized to the family, to the Nix family, and I think his the officer's mother was there. I think his office, the officer's mother was there. And he apologized to the family for taking the officer away from them. Now, here's a guy, obviously a bad guy, did a bad thing many years ago. Could he have changed while he was in jail? Of course, I believe people do change. Maybe he found God, maybe whatever. But the reality is he, he said that. He apologized to them for taking, taking the officer away from them. Uh, then he said goodbye to his family, and he said he was ready to go, and off he went. Off he went to uh, face, uh, face his judgment, as they say. So I just wanted to mention that because I was thinking of Officer Nixon. And, and, and you say to yourself, is that a valid punishment? Is taking someone's life a valid punishment for what they've done? Uh, 
And I have to think that it is. Now, I, I, this puts me a little at odds with my, my religious faith, uh, although uh, I'm a Catholic, right? And, and I know that the Catholic Church uh, had, has a doctrine of uh, justified war. You know, if you're at war, like you're fighting the Nazis and you go and you kill people, that's, that's justified. Uh, but I think the position that they hold is that unless there's anything else you can do to protect society from someone who has done something so terrible that they would receive a death sentence, uh, you should do some other things first, if you could, like life in prison without chance of parole. Uh, but me personally, you know, I, I, I wrestle with this idea to see, should the family of the victim have to suffer without closure, knowing that this person, whoever did this terrible thing, uh, gets to go on and live their life, they get to visit their friends, the people get to visit them in prison. Now, it's in prison, okay, so it's not great, but they get to see friends and family, they get to enjoy the holidays, they get to go to church, uh, they might even have conjugal visits where they can come in and, uh, and have a little party time. In the meantime, whoever was killed, this person never gets to enjoy their family, their family doesn't get to enjoy them. And I think it's an argument that I've had with a couple of friends of mine where they go, well, you're, you're a pro-life person. You want to save the babies, but you want to execute the killers. And I'm like, well, the, the two are not really, not really so hard to understand because it's not, it's not so much about the death as it is about the act. The baby is an innocent creature. It's an innocent human being. It's an innocent soul. It hasn't done anything. It's a baby. A person who has committed a terrible crime and murdered someone, taken their life, sexually assaulted them and killed them, whatever they did, that is a brutal, brutal thing to do to someone. And the penalty for that should be the taking of your life. You, you forfeit your life if you do that wantonly and knowingly. So in a recent episode, we talked about uh, the different meanings of things. We talked about uh, Alec Baldwin and his charge of manslaughter. But as, as I look around, there's, there's, lots of different, um, there's lots of different meanings. And I, I start talking about them when we talk about homicide. So I'm going to go over that real quick. And then we're going we're gonna to move on a little bit. I'm going to read you something from my upcoming book. Now, I know it's, it's not good on radio to read, but I think you'll like the chapter that we get into here. I, so the reality is that not all homicide is illegal, right? There's justifiable homicide. We talk about that. So murder is the wanton taking of somebody's life on purpose uh, with malice aforethought kind of a thing. You decide you hate somebody, you don't like them, you're going to rob the bank and kill everybody so there's no witnesses, and then you go in and do it. That's murder. Manslaughter is the unlawful taking of another person's life under circumstances other than murder. So without express or implied malice, right? Just, excuse me, justifiable homicide, we talked about that. Excusable homicide, committed through misfortune by a person doing a lawful thing under ordinary conditions without any intent, and then somebody ends up getting killed. Like just driving your car uh, and well, a tire blows out and you hit a tree. You had no intent to do that, and then your passenger dies. That's a, that's a terrible kind of a thing. Negligent homicide is caused by a person's negligent act. They do something purposely wrong. Like if you know you have, a, um, I don't know, a big hole in your backyard and uh, you can fall down 50 feet and, and, and die and you don't fix it up, knowing that the gas man comes around to read your meter and he can fall. You know what I mean? It, it, it's, you did something negligent. You did something stupid. 
reckless homicide is you have to do a reckless thing. You decide you're going to do donuts in the parking lot with your uh, your hot little car, and you're doing these donuts, donuts, and people are watching, and you lose control and wipe out three people, and one of them dies. That's negligent. It was very negligent what you did. And vehicular homicide. Um, if you're drinking alcohol or something like that, and, and you crash your car, and you kill another driver or a passenger in your car, their car, uh, pedestrian, whatever... So understanding these, these different kinds of things, is, it helps us to understand, especially when we looked, um, when we looked at the, the actor, Alec Baldwin, and, and what he did. And, and we talked about that. So go back and listen to that podcast. I thought that was pretty good. So one of the things that I try to talk about in my book, and this is going to give you some insight into understanding criminal investigation. And that's what my next book is called, The Investigation. It's going to be from Blue 360 Media. Uh, my first book is out there called The Interview. It is the be-all and end-all of how to conduct a proper, quality, and thorough criminal interview. So you can find that on Amazon. You can go to Blue 360 Media and get a copy of it. And get it for a copy, you know, or someone who has to interview people. It's, uh, it's, it's very helpful. I've had a lot of very, very positive feedback, and I'm very proud of the, the book. So that's why they want me to do a second one. And the way we're doing this book is that I'm going to tell the story of a real homicide and then how do we investigate it? So it's a unique way of, of presenting some training. But one of the things that I talk about in here is understanding when we look at a crime, is it a need-based crime or a drive-based crime? All right, so what's the difference between a need-based crime and a drive-based crime? A need-based crime might be something like uh, robbery. You, you need money, right? You want money, um, for gambling or drugs or whatever else you're doing, and you don't have enough money, so you decide you're going to go take money from someone else. That's that's a uh, that's a that's a need, right? That's not a drive. You don't have to go do that. Needs are things like you have to eat. You have a drive to eat. You have a sex drive, right? You have a sex drive to uh, procreate because that's built into us to keep the species going. So there are a lot of drives, and when we see crimes. One of the first things investigators should be doing is determining, is this a need crime or is this a drive crime? Because that will help you uh, to look for certain kind of facts, patterns of behavior. And then when you interview with somebody, you find a suspect. If you know that it's a need or a drive, you can use that to, uh, to poke at the person in your questioning to elicit things from them. So if somebody has a, has a need for money, uh, you could maybe exploit that, you know, find out what was their need? You know, why did you go in and rob this this house? Why did you go in and, and burglarize this house and steal people's things? And and then in one of these incidences, you go in and you're doing a burglary and you didn't realize that there was a 16-year-old girl home. And at that moment, you took advantage of the opportunity and you sexually assaulted that girl. Now, this is a horrific thing, but this happens. I mean, this happens um, more more often than we want to know. People go in to do one thing, uh, and then they end up doing another because it's an opportunity. But it wasn't a drive. The sexual assault wasn't a drive like it is for many many of our, our serial killers who are psychosexual killers, where they go out and part of their uh, the drive that they feel, this sex drive that they feel, is that they need to overpower someone because sexual assault uh, is really not about the sex. It's about the power over another person. And that's why you, you don't understand how can somebody do it. Now, it, now I know somebody say, well, listen, uh, I know somebody who did something bad sexually, but and they did it because they really wanted this person. Yes, of course. You know, everybody sees other people and finds them differently attractive. And you say, oh, you know, I'd like to be with that person. That would be fantastic. 
Um, but at the same time, you don't go and attack them, right? Uh, so there are some uh, there are some rapists out there that certainly uh, do attack people that they have uh, an affinity for, that they like, they want to have sex with, and then they go sexually assault them. I'm talking about the people who are driven, uh, this power drive to have this power of something. And what, how much more power could you have over somebody than to violate them bodily, right, and then take their life? You have total, complete control over these people. That is a drive that they, they can't seem to control, and that's why they do it over and over and over again. So the idea of a, of a need-based crime, when I would talk to somebody about that, I would talk about, you know, why they did it. You know, how come, how come you burglarized? How come you stole? Why did you rob that store? Why were you taking wallets from people or whatever? And you find out they have a drug problem or, you know, they have debts they can't pay and they have to, they're going to get in trouble themselves or whatever. And you can talk to them about that. When you get a drive-based person, now you're going you're gonna to push on that drive. You know, you're going to try and get them thinking and you're going to try and get them going and, and, and doing things. So it's, um, it's really interesting and I, and I kind of define that in this book for investigators so that they understand the difference between a need versus a drive type of a crime. Then there's also the types of criminals. See, now I think where this is helpful for you, my beloved audience, is that when you're watching these shows on TV, these crime shows, or you're watching the news, like right now there's, uh, there's trials going on that you can watch, a uh, very popular trial going on about a guy who killed his wife and his son, uh, I believe he was in Texas, and when you watch that, you, you try and ask yourself the questions, gee, did he do this as a need or a drive, That's, and that would, that would, you see how that would inform your questioning if you got to sit down with this person? Well, there's also types of criminals. Right? There's different kinds of criminals. What do we have? Well, I've defined them uh, as benign criminals. Um, they, they commit mostly you know, need-based crimes. Benign criminals, uh, they may turn to criminal actions to obtain food, shelter, you know, things like that. Basically, Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, right? Maslow, if you remember from high school, he says, you know, you, you have to cover the basic needs of life before we can do anything as a species to, to grow, right? So you need uh, sh shelter, security, food, and water. If you don't have those things, then your whole life is based around going to get them, right? So we think of early, early humanity when we had to uh, farm. Uh, I mean, when we had to go and, and hunt every single day and we had to eat off the land and that was, that consumed us. You know, look at the animals that are out in the world now. Uh, when we see, what do they do? Lions, tigers, and bears. They spend their time procreating, which is a drive, and they spend their time finding food, which is a drive, you know, so they're, they're based on drives. They're not creating poetry. Uh, as, as Rush Limbaugh used to say, dolphins may be very smart, but you don't see them building hospitals, right? Uh, as, as intelligent as they are, they're busy with, the, with Maslow's theory. They have to eat, they have to stay safe and, uh, and move around. Well, people are the same way. If we're, if we're not feeling safe, if we're not feeling uh, that we have enough food or shelter, then that's all we're going to spend our time doing. Once we have those things, then we can move on to the higher types of need. Then we can, you know, we can think. We can rationalize. We can start to create you know, music and poetry and writing and, and doing things and eventing, right? So that's the whole idea. So benign criminals are really the people who they're not, they're not going to hurt anyone. They don't go to hurt anyone. They go to handle those kind of, kind of basic needs. They will steal for food, money, drugs, uh, and that kind of thing. The other kind of criminal then is the malignant type of a criminal. This is usually someone who commits uh, drive-based crimes. 
this includes people who, who take their crimes to another level of danger or suffering for their victims. And that's kind of a hard thing to hear here in the afternoon, but uh, these psychosexual killers, part of, part of what many of them will do is they will increase the suffering for the victim because that motivates them, right? They feel better uh, doing that because then they have even more power. Look what I'm doing. Not only am I uh, hurting you, controlling you, sexually assaulting you, but now I'm, I'm going to increase your pain as well, your suffering. Maybe I, I talk about, they tell you what I'm going to do to you and that, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And it increases the pain. So for some of them, that is the pleasure in what they're doing. That is the drive to do that. So we got malignant criminals. Uh, they need to show power or they protect themselves from consequence. They have no concern over their victim. Um, they're more worried about themselves. Uh, and then we have the sociopathic or the mentally deranged criminal. Now, these are the people. Now, a sociopath, we hear that word a lot. He's a sociopath. Well, a sociopath is someone who has no understanding of someone suffering. They really don't get the idea that someone is suffering. They could care less. Uh, their whole gig is to, um, you know, control somebody and, and do what they're going to do. And they don't, they don't care. They, they've no, like you and I, if we did something accidentally bad, right, we'd probably feel bad about it. We would, we would feel guilt. We would feel shame. We'd feel whatever. A sociopath feels none of that. They simply do whatever their drive tells them to do, and they could care less uh, what consequence it calls, it calls, calls on for you. So... That's interesting. So as we watch these things, when you see different stories of crime, you, you need to you know, break it down in your mind to help you understand it better. Uh, a lot of times, because I, I'm an investigator, people will say, hey, Lieutenant Joe, did you see that, uh, did you see that thing on the, on the TV? What do you think happened? And, you know, it's easy uh, to, to, for everybody to jump in and go, oh, well, this is what happened. This is what I think what happened. That's what I, and a lot of people do. They guess at what they think happened based on their own life experience. Uh, as an investigator, uh, sure, I can come up with quick hypothesis, you know, of what I think happened in a particular crime. But the reality is, unless I'm there on the ground, you don't know all the inside facts. Unless you sit with that person and talk to them, um, that you don't necessarily get the full story. So when I, when I see these things on TV, I like to look a little further. I like to listen when people answer questions. It gives me some insight into, uh, into the mind of the person. So that's what we have. We have uh, benign, malignant, sociopathic, and deranged criminals. And recently, here on the uh, on the platform, I put up an article about the growing danger of uh, of the incel community. Now, I've, I've explained this before, but I, I include incels, uh, incel people who are involuntarily celibate, uh, that, and that's they they're self they're self uh, identifying as that that they're an incel, you know, male and female. I look at them in this mentally deranged, uh, sociopathic kind of a, a, a place because as a category, because there's no separate category for them. If they fit anywhere, they would be here. Because while there's a lot of incels that feel very angry, feel very upset, and may want to strike out, they don't. Others do. So to say that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're fit completely as malignant is really not true based on the system that I've devised here for, for understanding so an incel or an involuntary celibate person feels that um, the world is unfair, that um, the, for males anyway, the male, the male incel, the basic understanding of their community and how they see, see the world is that um, women, especially attractive women, 
which is the women that they, they desire, uh, the women that they desire, attractive, beautiful women, really only want to be with about 20% of the male population. And those males that they want to be with are either very attractive men, uh, very wealthy men, or soci- have great social status, you know, movie stars, uh, you know, really rich guys or somebody who has a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of influence or whatever. And to the male incel, that's frustrating. Because unless you're a very good-looking, rich guy with uh, status, they believe uh, you're not going to get the women that you desire. You know, you everybody, you know, what they, oh, I want a beautiful woman. I will never get a beautiful woman uh, as a partner or a sex partner or anything because I'm not in that 20%, and that's not fair. And their anger is turned towards women in general because they're very upset that these women will not be with them. And they, they are expressive outward. Their anger goes outward, which is why they, they do some bad things. So in, uh, in Canada, there was a guy uh, that, that committed a – he was an incel, self-described incel. And he attacked people with a car, ran them down, a bunch of women and, and people, because he was angry. And when he was arrested, because he was arrested, he paid homage to a guy in California uh, who used guns and knives to kill a bunch of women um, – again, a self-described incel. So these people are out there uh, and they have these beliefs and we have, to, we have to understand who they are when we investigate crimes. So that's why I included this in the book so that investigators will consider this as a potential um, person. So you can read the article. It's on the platform on, a, on America Out Loud. You can go read the article and, and there's a little bit more in there. But I, I included them in the different kinds of criminals. Now, I'll finish it up by saying you know, they're female incels also. These are women that uh, feel that they're unattractive, that men don't want to be with them, don't like them, uh, and it's very unfair that they can't have the partners that they desire. But the female incels have a tendency to turn the anger and everything inward into themselves. They blame themselves. They accept their lot in life, and they're depressed about it, whereas the males have a tendency to express violently outward, which that really matches the overall human population. When you say uh, males are, are, have a tendency to be more violent, uh, than females. So that's in here. Uh, the book should be out. I'm thinking they're telling me um, going to print, I don't know, maybe early March. So it should be out at the end of March or uh, or April. But I'll let you know when it's out there. But right now, the, the interview book, you can go get that. Go to Amazon, uh, look up uh, Lieutenant Joseph Pangaro, the interview, and you can go get a copy of the book. It's It's really gives you some great insight into how people think and things that we can do. All right. Um, what I wanted to do now is I'm going to, I think I'm going to cover the rest of the topics I have here. And then maybe in part two of our little get together today, I'll read uh, some of the, the storyline uh, that we're using in the book, uh, which is a real true story of a double homicide, very, very brutal double homicide that I investigated. And um, like looking to turn it into a screenplay as well. But right now I'm using it as the backdrop for the book, The Investigation. And I take you through the crime and we try and learn how to investigate each part uh, of that crime so that you can become better. And I think it, it's, a, it's a very interesting story anyway. So we'll get to that in a minute. So when we go back to the world around us, um, we do see uh, the recent uh, incidents with Omar uh, Ilan Omar in Congress and the squad. Now, I'm telling you, you can be upset that you got put off a committee and you can be upset that uh, you don't think it's fair, but it, it, that's the game. That's the game you play. And when the Democrats are in charge, they throw Republicans off. When the Republicans are in charge, they throw Democrats off. 
But if you watch the news and you watch this this squad, this uh, Talib, uh, Omar, uh, AOC from New York, you watch, they, they're just losing their minds. They're screaming, they're crying, they're yelling. Okay, I get being upset, but be professional. Just you know, tell us why you think she has the the greatest uh, of qualities. And then of course they turn it around and they turn it on into race. Um, because she's a black woman, that's why they're attacking her. AOC says, this is an attack on women of color. Does it have to be an attack on women of color because of race? Can it just be that maybe uh, this Elon Omar had hateful thoughts in her head? She's, she's an anti-Semite, and maybe, maybe she's not as brilliant as everyone thinks she is. Could it be that? I mean, that goes for a guy, too. Could a guy just be a dope? Does it have to be because he's a white guy or a black guy or, or something else? Everything doesn't come back to race. The only people everything comes back to race or is usually for people who see, only see the world as, as based on race. You know, when I, when I meet people, I don't say, oh, that's that kind of person. I should think this way. Oh, that's that kind of person. I should think that way. Do you do that? Is that how you, when you meet somebody? I don't do that. I don't see the world that way. I say, oh, that's Joe. That's Frank. That's Harry. That's who I meet. Oh, Muriel, Tina, whatever. I see them as a person, as a human being. Now, if they turn out that they're idiots, I might think they're an idiotic human being has nothing to do with their race. But it seems to be that's, in our country now, that's the one of the best things you can do is jump up and down and scream, it's about your race, right? Um, but but it's really not. And they're just using it as an excuse. And I just find it um, hysterical to watch them lose their minds like that. I mean, okay, make your case. You think she should be on there? What qualities does she have that she should be on the Foreign Relations Committee that she brings uh, unbelievable... Um, ability and skills to that committee to help America be better, because that's that's why you're on those committees, so that you help the country, not not for yourself. Um, along that line of things that we see, uh, you know, trying to keep the justice here in the chasing justice. So I'm doing more and more on the police things. I'm giving you insight into investigations. Uh, I got some some interviews lined up, and I know I talked about it, uh, but there's a guy named Walter Yurku. So Walter, if you're listening out there. Um, Walter was a member of uh, the NYPD at a time uh, when him and a group of his officers went rogue and were robbing drug dealers, and they all got arrested, and it was a big scandal in the NYPD. And Walter uh, and his compatriots went to jail for a amount of time, and now he's out and about, uh, apparently changed his whole lifestyle, doing whatever. But he's going to come on because uh, we've connected up, and he wants to come in, and I'm going to ask him some probing questions about why would you do what you did? Why did you go bad? Right, so we're going to have Walter out here uh, sooner, sooner rather than later. It's just a matter of setting up the, the interview and getting to him. All right, so what else did we see? Um, I see there's a, a veteran out there, a military veteran, and he's going around uh, to different places holding up a sign that says, God bless uh, homeless vets. Now, he's not, he's not asking for money, but he's got this sign. He goes in and carries it in front of different places. He's down in Georgia. And apparently he's gotten arrested quite a few times because they're saying, you're not allowed to panhandle. Well, he's not panhandling. He's holding up a sign. God bless, you know, the, the homeless vets. He's, he's making a statement. It's his free speech. Uh, and he keeps getting arrested. So now he's going to sue. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, what's going to happen with him suing. He's going to sue because he said, that's my free speech. I mean, I see people all over the place here standing around begging for money, uh, interrupting traffic. And I just want to have something to say. God bless our homeless vets. I'm putting that thought in people's minds. And, and my free speech should not be infringed, so to speak. So that's in the news. So if you see that out there, you'll understand that story. I'm going to see where that goes, where his lawsuit goes. Because 
Free speech is the linchpin of all our other freedoms. We've talked about that here many times. So I want you to think about that for a few minutes, and we'll be right back with more Chasing Justice. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, keep your face always toward the sunshine and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. All right, everybody, come on in. Sit down. Remember, you have a backstage pass to life here on Chasing Justice. So I was just, uh, I was just about to go get my, uh, my vitamin fix for the day. Uh, I like to take the Healthy Cell uh, Immune Boost. I talk about it all the time now because it really has made a difference to me. And I figured I'd tell you about it right at the beginning here because I'm about to run over and get one. And uh, I, I did it once before. I took it right on air because it's very, very tasty. I think it's like a black cherry. Um, it's it's a, it's like a liquidy thing inside the pouch. You tear it open. You can mix it with water. You can drink it straight down. You can put it on ice cream. There's lots of things people do with it, but it really helps build up your immune system, and that helps you fight things off. And, and I'm a, a big proponent of staying healthy, and I have found that the Healthy Cell products have really helped me, especially the Immune Boost. That's the one I'm taking. Um, I, I bought another one. It's for, for thinking, for thinking clearly. But as you can obviously tell, Lieutenant Joe thinks very clearly. So, uh, but I, I always want to think better. I want to think more. So I bought that and I want to start taking it. I got to put it into my routine. But I use the Healthy Cell Immune Boost and it's really, really helped me. Uh, so I tell you about it. All right. So I told you in the, uh, at the end of, the, of, our, end of our first uh, segment that we were going to talk a little bit more on crime and, and things. So I think I'm going to cover uh, a couple more topical kind of things, and then I'm going to read some from my story. Now, I promise that I'm going to read it dramatically. 
right? I'm going to read it to try and put you right there at the scene uh, of the story so that you understand it, because uh, it's a very interesting story. But first, let's look at some other things. Recently, I saw a terrible video of uh, a couple of young, young men on a school bus, and they were beating a young girl. I think she was nine years old. I think she was nine years old and these two boys obviously a little older than her uh somebody's filming it on the bus and you know okay kids fight you know they fight they push they shove it's not right but kids do it well these two kids start fighting apparently with this girl and you see the video when somebody lifts up their phone that's where we've got the video from and the one the one young man is probably about I don't know, maybe a year or so older than the girl, and he's slapping her, punching her, punching her, punching her. Then the boy stands up, and he's much bigger than this girl, and he just goes to town on her, punching, pummeling her little head. I mean, she's leaning over in the in the seat trying to protect herself. This kid's standing in the in the aisle of the bus, pummeling. I mean, pummeling this girl. It was it was horrific to watch. I couldn't imagine being that that girl's parents and seeing her beat like that. And, and not feel helpless and, and angry and, and all kinds of things. But, you know, where does that come from? You know, kids fight. I was in fights. You know, probably a lot of you were in fights. You get into a fight, you, you, you duke it out, and then everybody moves on. Um, but to see this kind of blatant violence that we have in our society today at younger and younger ages does not bode well for us as, as a nation. Um, what, what are we teaching our kids that they would think that not only they could do that, but that was the right thing to do? This, th what could this little girl have done or said that these two boys would get up and pummel her? And I'm telling you, go see the video. Uh, it is absolutely horrific. I mean, I see a lot of things are horrific, but this was horrific to watch. But that's, it's not an isolated incident. I mean, there are kids doing things all over the place. There are, there are, are violent teenagers now. Uh, recently, who was it, uh, on, on Fox News, one of the, I think he's a cameraman, a reporter, and he was coming home from somewhere in, in New York, and he was on the subway at, I think he said, 1.15 in the morning, okay? That's not super late. Uh, I know that uh, 9 o'clock is the new midnight for many people, but this is 1.15 in the morning in New York City, the city that never sleeps, and this guy's coming home, and a group of teenagers... Uh, were, were harassing an old man, and they set his beard on fire. So these, these young teenagers find, I find this, I don't know if he was a homeless guy or just an old guy sitting there, and they light his beard on fire. And they're laughing, oh, it's a star. And this guy stands up and says, hey, leave the guy alone. Now, of course, the, the kids now turn on this guy, and they start fighting and beating him, and they beat this guy. And the train stops, and they jump off, and then they apparently they got back on, and they beat him up again. He's laying on the ground, and they're kicking, kicking at his head and being violent. What the hell is going on in our nation when these things can happen? So I want to talk about that for a second. I mean, when I was the director of school safety and security, there was an incident where um, uh, a guy's daughter had gotten into a, a problem with some of the kids, you know, they, you know, as kids can be. Sometimes they're very cruel. And they started picking on this kid and picking and picking and picking and picking. And next thing you know, the kid's on the bus and basically starts into a fight and several kids hold the kid and another kid punches the kid and, and it was pretty bad. Well, when the kid got home and told his father, he was obviously very, very upset 
that this happened. Uh, wouldn't you be? Of course. Right? He was very upset. So he complained to the school. And when I, when I talk to schools about safety and violence and active shooters and all that kind of stuff, one of the things that we have to look at is uh, why would somebody attack? Why would somebody attack their classmates in an active shooter incident or, or come after people? And everyone's, oh, because they're bullied, because they're bullied. Well, that's there's some truth to that, but they can also be the bully, right? Because the bully, usually someone who's a bully is someone who is um, insecure. They're unhappy with themselves. They're unhappy with their place in the world. Maybe they feel the only way they can be powerful is to, is to strike out at people who are weaker than them so that they feel better about themselves. The whole psychology. I uh, should put out a shingle here and, uh, and try and uh, psychoanalyze these people. But just from experience, what I do know is when I talk to these schools, I would tell them, if you have a bullying program, right, uh, your bullying program is only as good as the victim thinks it is, right? You might think it, and I find that a lot. I, I, I talk to parents of, of a kid that's bullied, and they say, oh, we went to the school, we did this, that, and the other thing, and the school investigated, and nothing changed. And then you talk to the school, and they'll say, oh, yes, yes, we have a great bullying program, and we addressed that issue, and we, we took care of it, and it, it, everything's good now. Well, the victim doesn't feel it's good, and that's the essence. If the victim doesn't feel things are better, then they're not better, and that can turn into anger and violence and striking out later on. So when I see these kind of incidents uh, that go on, this violence with these kids, I'm saying, um, this is terrible. And in this incident I'm talking about, this father got, got no relief uh, from the school system. Uh, there, his kid did not feel safer, better, less picked on. And the father ended up going to the bus stop and his intention, and I believe his intention, because of course I had to interview him when he did this, um, is that he, when the bus stopped and all the kids were getting on, he got on the bus and started yelling at the kids that were picking on, on his kid yelling and screaming at them to keep their hands to themselves. They better not touch this boy again. Now I'm very intimidating and totally inappropriate for the man to get on the bus. Uh, he should not have gotten on the bus. He scared all those kids. He endangered everybody. Even if uh, the reality is he wouldn't have hit them, he wouldn't have punched them, he wouldn't have done anything to them. He was frustrated, and he he had to do something because the school wasn't doing enough. The victim was not feeling that the bullying situation was any better, and that can lead people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. Okay, so that's that's really my point about the violence. What what makes these kids so violent today that they will pummel a, a little a little girl? Uh, and, and I'm telling you, you're going to be shocked when you see the video. This is this was a big kid, and he was punching like he was fighting in the ring with this little girl who's just got her head bent over trying to protect herself. And the kids, the other kids, are cheering it on. They're cheering it on. Oh yeah, this is great. No, I'm saying. This is horrific. And, and what's what's that kid, those two boys that, that beat this little girl, what's their life going to be like next? Who, who are they going to attack next as they get older and bigger and stronger? And what's their life going to be? Where are these parents to, to, to talk to these kids? You know, uh, and tell them that this is not the way to go. What, what are the influences in the kids like? No, I don't know. I don't know anything about them. But I do know raising my own children, uh, there was times in in my children's lives, like there is for a lot of people, that they get in conflict with other people. And sometimes the conflict is mental and it's verbal and you have verbal conflicts with people. And then other times it could be physical. You know, like I said, I was in fights when I was in school. You, you know, you, you get in an argument with somebody. It goes from one thing to another. You got all this testosterone running around. Next thing you know, you're swinging. 
And, and that happens, right? I've been there. And I knew that was going to happen with, uh, with my kids as well. And what I always told them was, do not be the person that starts the fight, right? Do not be the person that starts the fight. And you should not throw a punch unless you're physically threatened. But if you're physically threatened, don't wait till you get your teeth knocked out to fight. Now, some people can say that's good advice, that's bad advice. But think about it. Um, preemptively throwing a punch. If, if, you're st- if you say you, put you, let's put you on the subway. There you are. You're on the subway. You're minding your own business, drinking your latte, reading your newspaper, and somebody starts making comments to you. Uh, maybe they're nasty comments. Maybe they're just, uh, they don't like your shoes, whatever. And you say, hey, you know, leave me alone. Go away. And now they come over and they, they give you a little foot tap. Oh, yeah, what are you going to do about it? I could say what I want. I could stand right in front of you. What do you want? Blah, blah. And they, they smack your paper. Now, how long are you going to sit there before you say, hey, get the hell away from me? Oh, yeah, what are you going to do? Are you going to stand up at that point? Are you going to react? Or are you just going to sit there and hope that they go away? Well, in our modern world, uh, it, it may sound uh, it may sound different. A lot of people, I would get up and kick his butt. I would just, but you don't know if that person is crazy. You don't know if they got a knife, they got a gun. What are you going to do? Right? So I, I put you there. Now you're there. Now, that, now you stand up and tell this person, hey, get away from me. And you can see that they start clenching their hands. They're going to lean back. They're going to do something. Is it smart to wait for that person to take a swing at you and, and knock your teeth out? Or do you do something preemptive? Okay? So the reason that I'm bringing that up, the reason I'm bringing that up, if you remember uh, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about... Uh, the gentleman who was standing on the corner uh, outside an abortion clinic and a woman went in for abortion and her escort came along with her. And then this escort, who was apparently an older guy, came out and started giving a hard time to all the protesters and saying things. And at one point, this protester guy thought that his young son who was there with him, who was being accosted by this uh, person, was going to do something to the kid, and he pushed him and knocked him down. And, of course, the, the protester got arrested for interfering with an abortion clinic and assaulting the guy and all that, and it went to trial. And we had discussed this, and I said, I didn't know how this was going to come out um, in trial, because if you had a liberal judge, he might say, hey, you have no right to defend yourself. And if you had a conservative judge, he might say, yeah, once you were accosted, uh, you could defend yourself. We didn't know. Well, the case has been settled, and we heard, and the guy who pushed the, uh, the escort, so to speak, uh, was found not guilty of assault, right? So we had a couple of, uh, couple of things we were talking about, fighting words, did he feel intimidated? Do you have a right to protect your personal space? And that's what I'm talking about here. So if somebody came up and stood in front of your face, how, how long are you going to go uh, until you have to do something? Now, what if you're there with somebody? What if you're there with your child? And now they start saying things and looking at your kid and pointing at your kid. How long do you stand there? before you do something, right? We all have to make that decision, but our our society has gotten more and more violent. Um, and and I, don't see, I don't see a lot of ways back um, unless we have a, a different way of looking at things, holding criminals accountable for their action. You know, this no bail, nonsense bail. Uh, we're not going to have bail because it's not fair that you have to have bail. Yeah, there's reform that we can do. We've talked about that as well. But the reality is, People, once they've, they've notified society that they're dangerous, that they shouldn't be around us because they're going to hurt people, we have to lock them up. That's, uh, that's the only way to go here. You have to protect yourself from them. Even 
my church says, you know, uh, if you have to protect yourself, uh, okay, you, you protect yourself. Um, so I, I think it's interesting. Um, that's that's our whole theme here today is 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 crime and violence and how it affects each one of us. And those stories are pretty good. Now I don't I don't think I finished my thought in the in the first part of the episode. Uh, actually, when I started talking about the death penalty and why I think it's it's reasonable. Not only it brings closure, the victims don't have to think about this person the rest of their life. They know the person has suffered the ultimate consequence for their action, and maybe the victim's family can then move on. When I look at it for myself, I say, yes, um, that is a very, very serious penalty, and killing somebody should have a very serious penalty. Now, this is why I gave us definitions early on. If it was a murder, a purposeful attack, uh, that should be the most severe, which could end up in the death penalty, right? That's, you could end up with a death penalty. An involuntary manslaughter or a manslaughter because you did something reckless or stupid. Somebody's dead forever. Um, you know, how much of a bite should that take out of your life? Well, a big enough bite that you feel it, right? That it disrupts your life. Uh, but you had no intent to kill the person. It just came out that way. And that's why there's all different gradations of, uh, of manslaughter, uh, and that's why, see, I'm trying to tie this all together for us. We get a big crime story going on today. All right, with all that in mind, let me see if there's anything else here. Oh, I did want to mention, uh, I saw an article on the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, now, this was a group of African-American pilots uh, in World War II who, who were very brave, wonderful American heroes and patriots. And I read this article, and if you haven't read about the Tuskegee Airmen, you should go, go and, and find out who they are. Uh, and read about them because uh, absolutely tremendous Americans, and I'm very proud of them. And I think uh, we should we should look back at that. Okay. So anyway, um, I think I covered everything I wanted to talk about here on this, and then we're going to try and get to a little bit of uh, the story in my upcoming book. All right. So this is this is the the way I'm doing this. I was I was the lead investigator on a double homicide that took place in the town where I worked. Now, one of the choices I had to make in writing this, I was going to write it as a screenplay, which I'm still going to do because it's a very interesting, very interesting case, a lot of twists and turns, as you will hear. Uh, but I had to decide, do I keep the names of the real people? Because you're allowed to do that if you're telling the truth. And of course, anybody would go look up the case, they would see everything I'm saying is true about, what, about the people involved and who did what to who and all that. So that would be perfectly acceptable. But a lot of times there are people that are involved that if, if this came up with their loved one's name, like the victims, right? Their victims' names came up and this and that. That could be very, very painful. Uh, so I, I would never want to be someone who caused more pain, especially to some people who were murdered and their families, right? That would be terrible. So I've made a decision to change the names, uh, though, the though the story you're about to hear is the truth. The names have been changed to protect the innocent, right? And that's why they do those things. All right, so here's, here's the basic premise. There was a, uh, a family in the town where I lived, and it was no, it was no uh, mystery to anybody that the family was involved in organized crime. It was, it was a known fact. Uh, the grandfather was a made man out of New York, and he was sent down to the Jersey Shore to run the gambling operations in the 1950s. He handled all the book down here and uh, took care of the bets, paid off the bets, collected the money, brought it to, to New York. That was his job. Uh, his son um, 
his son was was not a made man, but he was an associate, and he took over the collection and the the taking of the bets and the payoffs and all that stuff. And my police department, we had arrested him two or three times uh, on gambling investigations. Had arrested uh, um, the the son of the made man, right? Uh, we had arrested him several times. We took a million dollars cash off them because they had it in safety deposit box rolled up in ten thousand dollar wads. Um, it was all gambling money, and we took that as part of a, it's called a law enforcement trust fund. You seize assets of criminals and criminal activity, and you can use it to help further investigations, buy equipment for the police department, things like that. In other words, you use the bad guy's money to help the good guys and girls. So anyway, so you have the made guy, and he's running the gambling. Then you have his son, who's an associate. He's doing stuff. Well, the third in line, okay, the third kid in line, um, he's not allowed to be a part of the family business because this kid got involved with drugs. He was using heroin, cocaine. We had arrested him several times uh, and he was just not, they could not be trustworthy enough to be involved in the family business. So he wasn't. Well, he got so messed up on these drugs um, that uh, him and his girlfriend, uh, they had a baby. Uh, and at the time that this took place, this incident took place uh, in 2004, the, the young boy was seven years old. So his mother and father are both heroin addicts. They're junkies. Their life is spiraling out of control. Uh, youth and Family Services was called in a couple times, and they were going to take the kid away. So the, the mother, who was a, a good, decent person just involved with drugs, she decided, uh, I better get some help. And they got a family member to take the boy, which was good, so we didn't have to go into foster care or anything. And... She decided to go to one of these uh, lockdown rehabs where they lock you down for six weeks. You can't make phone calls. You can't leave. You just you do psychotherapy and you get treatment from doctors and try and break the heroin habit, which is very hard. And she tried to talk her her boyfriend Robert into going with her. Uh, and Robert didn't want to go. He didn't think he needed it. Uh, he he wanted to stay out. So the girl uh, Linda she decides to to go to uh, to this rehab and she's locked down. Well, she's in there probably. I don't know, three weeks into her, her stay. And what you did is you stayed at this rehab for a six weeks lockdown. Then you went four weeks to a halfway house uh, in Jersey City, New Jersey. And you would go to work every day and come home to the halfway house. So you, so you rehabilitated yourself, no drugs, you cleaned up. Then you go back to getting a job, going to work every day, doing something, right, to be a, a productive citizen. And she was doing, she was on that program and she was probably in three weeks into the lockdown when Robert decided, you know what, um, I should probably clean up my act. I'll go sign myself in. And he did. Well, when he got there, he found Linda um, and other people were there trying to clean up his, their act and, and, and he really wanted to clean up his act. So he made friends with another guy there from the same area. All right. This guy's name was John and John and Linda and Robert became friendly. You know, they talked every day. Therapy, they're trying to work their way through it. Well, Linda moves on and she goes to her uh, halfway house and so does um, this John character. He goes off and he goes to rehab. Well, uh, Robert is still in there, locked down. No more phone calls, can't talk to her, can't see her, this, that, and the other thing for a couple of weeks anyway. Um, and eventually she clears the program and Linda goes home. She goes back to the, to the, uh, to Robert's family home where he, where she was living with him. They had a place there. And while they're there, uh, while, while she's there, uh, Robert moves on to the halfway house, and now he's allowed to make calls. And every time he calls home, John is there. 
and she answers the phone uh, or John answers the phone hey hang on let me put Linda on right so w what happens of course Robert starts to get jealous and at some point Robert decided he was going to sneak home in the middle of the night and he was going to try and catch Linda and John in bed and it ended up into a horrific crime where he he killed Linda he stabbed her 33 times then his grandmother, very elderly grandmother, Jean, uh, heard the commotion, went in and saw the girl laying on the floor, Linda laying on the ground, on a pile of photographs, of family photographs. Imagine that. He, they must have been arguing, knocked them on the floor, he killed her, and she's laying on top of them. It's a horrific scene. And uh, grandma sees this and says, I'm going to call the police. Well, she had to go downstairs to do that, and she made it almost almost all the way down when, uh, when Robert came bounding after her with this big old knife and... Uh, Basically, I don't know, tried to grab her or whatever, but the knife went across her neck and cut her head off, and he killed her. Then he went back upstairs to the, uh, to the bedroom where Linda was, already deceased, and he cut her head, her hands, and her feet off. Then he did that to Grandma, um, and that's all part of the story of why he did that came out in the investigation. But that's kind of where we're going to start here. This is the, this is the story, um, and like I said, I started like a, uh, like a novel. And then we're going to go in and I'm going to teach the officers what they should look for in each part. So the beginning, I tell the history of them and then how he got to the house. And I say, okay, um, now that you know he's at the house, where would you go back and look for evidence? And I lay out all the places that they could find evidence of his travel, his times, what he did in that, right? So that's kind of what we have. Then we go into the actual crime scene when he commits the murders. And then I stop it at that point at the end of the murders. And I say, let's go back now, look at the crime scene. Let's discuss this. Let's see how what, what went on here. So that's the premise of the book, The Investigation. But here's a little bit of the opening. And I call it The Descent. That's the opening chapter, The Descent. Right, so it was early summer in 2004, and it came to the Jersey Shore like it normally does this time of year in June with warm and sticky, humid air. Right, even in the middle of the night, um, at 4.20 in the morning, the temperature was already in the high 70s. Uh, the air rolled up and down the streets like a fog. It was clinging to everything. And out of the darkness, this whole neighborhood is quiet. Out of the darkness, this beat-up uh, Chevy uh, Monte Carlo comes rolling along nice and slow on the block, and it parks in on the street on Riverview Avenue. Right? The driver shuts down the engine, gets out of the car, and stands there for a minute. But he didn't turn the headlights out. So the headlights are still on. you got the fog coming down. You can see it. And he's looking two doors up at his family home. All right, so this is Robert, who obviously came home, and he was going to go sneak in the house. All right, so he walks past the car, leaves the headlights on, which become important evidence later on. So stepping out of the car, he carefully closed the door not to make any unnecessary noise. His eyes focused on the house three doors up. Crossing through the headlight beams, he made his way to the sidewalk, and he paused. His heart was pounding in his chest. And his moment of truth had arrived in what he had been planning. This was 29-year-old Robert Mazzella Jr. Uh, Robert Mazzella Sr. and Robert, uh, his nickname, Grandpa's nickname was Bear Mazzella, were uh, the three people that we're talking about here. All right, so the, the Mazzellas were very well known in the community. Mostly they kept to themselves, but they were liked. They were nice people in general, um, other than the fact that they were an organized crime. And... Uh, this is where we have Robert coming home, okay? So by the time he had arrived to this point, you know his background, right? You know that he was involved with heroin, he was in his rehab, and he went there to try and uh, 
try and see if he could catch uh, the girl, Linda, that he was in love with and is the mother of his child with somebody. All right, so dressed in a jeans and a T-shirt and a dark hoodie, Robert walked towards the light, large white two-story colonial house. The rest of the neighborhood, the house was dark and quiet. The only sound was the occasional car that could be heard rounding a traffic circle not far away. Inside the house, Robert knew he would find his 88-year-old grandmother, Jean, uh, and Linda. And he assumed he would find John in there as well. So looking at the house along the right side of the home, a single porch light blinked on as Robert walked up the driveway. He stopped and looked around very cautiously, thinking somebody had seen him now. Then he remembered that light was on a motion sensor. He quickly climbed up on the porch and unscrewed the light bulb, returning, to the, returning the area to darkness. Sweat dripped from his forehead and back down under his hoodie. Wiping his brow, he reached out and turned the doorknob, and it was locked. The side door led to a kitchen and a pantry area. The bedrooms were upstairs on the other side of the house. A small window to the kitchen was located just to the left of the porch. Robert tried it and found that it was unlocked, just like it had been his whole life growing up in this house, and he had snuck in many times as a teenager. So he thought this was good. He unscrewed the light bulb so that uh, the light went out, and he slid the window up. Once he slid the window up, he climbed up inside and pulled himself across the sink and onto the floor. He was really careful not to make any noise. Surprise was going to be the element here that was going to help him. That's what he needed. All right, so that's, uh, that's the beginning of the story. Now we got him in the house and uh, the rest of the story. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll tell some more on another episode. If, uh, if people like it, you let me know. And I'll go on and on with the story and explain it to you. But uh, very brutal, crazy crime. And that was our whole focus today because here on Chasing Justice, we want to talk about justice. And I think telling the story of the Mazella family and what happened to them is my way of doing something for the victims. I investigated the crime and put the killer in prison for the rest of his life, but I think telling their story uh, is also a way of honoring them. So listen, my friends, thank you for being here today. It's been fun. Uh, Another episode of Chasing Justice. And remember, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. We'll see you down the road here on America Out Loud Radio Network.